Book number one, chapter number one, The Fallen Leaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fallen Leaves by Wilkie Collins. Book number one, chapter number one. Sixteen years after the date of Mr. Ronald's disastrous discovery at Ramsgate, this is to say, in the year 1872, the steamship Aquila left the port of New York bound for Liverpool. It was the month of September. The passenger list of the Aquila had comparatively few names inscribed on it. In the autumn season, the voyage from America to England, but for the remunerative value of the cargo, would prove to be, for the most part, a profitless voyage to the shipowners. The flow of passengers at that time of year set steadily the other way. Americans are returning from Europe to their own country. Tourists have delayed the voyage until the fierce August heat of the United States has subsided, and the delicious Indian summer is ready to welcome them. At the bed and board the passengers by the Aquila on her own homeward voyage had plenty of room, and the choicest morsels for everybody alike on the well-spread dinner table. The wind was favorable, and the weather was lovely. Cheerfulness and good humor pervaded the ship from stem to stern. The courteous captain did the honors of the cabin table with an air of a gentleman who was receiving friends in his own house. The handsome doctor promenaded the deck arm in arm with ladies in the course of rapid recovery from the first gastric consequences of traveling by sea. The excellent chief engineer, musical in his leisure moments to his fingers' ends, played on the fiddle in his cabin accompanied on a flute by a young Apollo of the Atlantic trade, the steward's mate. Only on the third morning of the voyage was the harmony aboard the Aquila disturbed by a passing moment of discord, due to an unexpected addition to the ranks of the passengers in the shape of a lost bird. It was merely a weary little land bird, blown out of its course as the learned in such manners supposed, and it perched on one of the yards to rest and recover itself after its long flight. The instant the creature was discovered, the insatiable Anglo-Saxon delight in killing birds, from the majestic eagle to the contemptible sparrow, displayed itself in full frenzy. The crew ran about the decks. The passengers rushed into their cabins, eager to seize the first gun and to have the first shot. An old quartermaster of the Aquila was an enviable man, who first found the means of destruction ready to his hand. He lifted the gun to his shoulder, he had his finger on the trigger, and when he was suddenly pounced upon by one of the passengers. A young, slim, sunburnt, active man who snatched away the gun, discharged it over the side of the vessel, and turned furiously to the quartermaster. You wretch, would you kill that poor, weary bird that trusts our hospitality and only asks us to give it a rest? That little harmless thing is as much one of God's creatures as you are. I'm ashamed of you. I'm horrified at you. You've got bird murder in your face. I hate the sight of you. The quartermaster, a large, grave, fat man, slow alike in his bodily and mental movements, listened to this extraordinary remonstrance with a fixed stare of amazement, and an open mouth from which unspat tobacco juice trickled down in little brown streams. When the impetuous young gentleman paused, not for want of words, mere for want of breath, the quartermaster turned about and addressed himself to the audience gathered around. Gentlemen, he said, with Roman brevity, this young fellow is mad. The captain's voice checked the general outbreak of laughter. That will do, quartermaster. Let it be understood that nobody is to shoot the bird. And let me suggest to you, sir, that you might have expressed your sentiments quite as effectually in less of violent language. Addressed in those terms, the impetuous young man burst into another fit of excitement. You're quite right, sir. I deserve every word you have said to me. 
I feel I have disgraced myself. He ran after the quartermaster and seized him by both hands. I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon with all my heart. You would have served me right if you had thrown me overboard after the language I used to you. Pray you excuse my quick temper. Pray you forgive me. What do you say? Let bygones be bygones. This is a capital way of putting it. You're a thorough good fellow, if I can ever be of the smallest use to you. There's my card and address in London. Let me know it. I entreat you to let me know it. He returned in a violent hurry to the captain. I've made it up with the quartermaster, sir. He forgives me. He bears no malice. Allow me to congratulate you on having such a good Christian in your ship. I wish I was like him. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, for the disturbance I have made, and it shan't happen again. I promise you that. The male travelers in general looked at each other, and they seemed to agree with the quartermaster's opinion of their fellow passenger. The women, touched by his evident sincerity and charmed with his handsome, blushing, eager face, agreed that it was quite right to save the poor bird, and that it would be all better for the weaker part of creation generally if other men were more like him. While the various opinions were still in course of expression, the sound of luncheon bell cleared the deck of the passengers with two exceptions. One was the impetuous young man. The other was a middle-aged traveler with a grizzled beard and a penetrating eye, who silently observed the proceedings and who now took the opportunity of introducing himself to the hero of the moment. "'Are you not going to take any luncheon?' he asked. "'No, sir. Among the people I have lived with, we don't eat at intervals of three or four hours all day long.' "'Will you excuse me?' pursued the other. "'If I own, I should like to know what people you have been living with. My name is Heathcote. I was associated at one time in my life with a college devoted to the training of young men.' From what I have seen and heard this morning, I fancy you have not been educated on any of the recognized systems that are popular at present day. Am I right? The excitable young man suddenly became a picture of resignation, and he answered in a formula of words as if he was repeating a lesson. I am Claude Amelius Goldenheart, age 21, son and only child of the late Claude Goldenheart of Sheffield Heath, Buckinghamshire, England, and I have been brought up by the primitive Christian socialists at Tadmore Community, State of Illinois. I have inherited an income of five hundred a year, and I am now, with the approval of the community, going to London to see life. Mr. Heathcote received this copious flow of information, in some doubt whether he had been made the victim of coarse raillery, or whether he had just merely heard a quaint statement of facts. Claude Amelius Goldenheart saw that he had produced an unfavorable impression, and hastened to set himself right. "'Excuse me, sir,' he said. "'I am not making game of you, as you would suppose.' We are taught to be courteous to everyone in our community. The truth is, there seems to be something odd about me. I'm sure I don't know what, which makes people whom I meet on my travels curious to know who I am. If you'll please remember, it's a long way from Illinois to New York, and curious strangers are not scarce on the journey. When one is obliged to keep saying the same thing over and over again, a form saves a great deal of trouble. I have made a form for myself which is respectfully at the disposal of any person who does me the honor to wish for my acquaintance. Will that do, sir? Very well, then. Shake hands to show you're satisfied. Mr. Heathcote shook hands, more than satisfied. He found it impossible to resist the bright, honest brown eyes, the simple, winning, cordial manner of the young fellow with the quaint formula and the strange name. Come, Mr. Goldenheart, he said, leading the way to a seat on the deck. Let us sit down comfortably and have a talk. Anything you like, sir, but don't call me Mr. Goldenheart. Why not? Well, it sounds formal, and besides, you're old enough to be my father. It's my duty to call you Mr. or Sir, as we say to our elders at Tadmore. I have left all my friends behind me at the community, and I feel lonely out here on this big ocean among strangers. Do me a kindness, sir. Call me by my Christian name, and give me a friendly slap on the back if you find we get along smoothly in the course of a day. 
Which of your names shall it be, Mr. Heathcote asked, humoring this odd lad. Claude? No, not Claude. The primitive Christians said Claude was a finicking French name. Call me Amelius, and I shall begin to feel at home again. If you're in a hurry, cut it down to three letters, as they did at Tadmore, and call me Mel. Very good, said Mr. Heathcote. Now, my friend Amelius, or Mel, I'm going to speak out plainly, as you do. The primitive Christian socialists must have had great confidence in their system of education to turn you adrift in the world without a companion to look after you. You've hit it, sir, Amelius answered coolly. They have unlimited confidence in their system of education, and I am proof of it. You have relations in London, I suppose, Mr. Heathcote proceeded. For the first time, the face of Amelius showed a shadow of sadness on it. I have relations, he said, but I promise never to claim their hospitality. They are hard and worldly, and they will make you hard and worldly, too. That is what my father said to me on his deathbed. He took off his hat when he mentioned his father's death and came to a sudden pause with his head bent down, like a man absorbed in thought. In less than a minute he put his hat on again and looked up with his bright winning smile. We say a little prayer for loved ones that are gone when we speak of them, he explained, but we don't say it out loud for fear of seeming to parade our religious convictions. We hate Kant in our community. I cordially agree with the community, Amelius, but my good fellow, you have really no friend to welcome you when you get to London? Amelius answered the question mysteriously. Wait a little, he said, and took the letter from his breast pocket of his coat. Mr. Heathcote, watching him, observed that he looked at the address with unfeigned pride and pleasure. One of our brethren at the community has given this to me, he announced. It is a letter of introduction, sir, to a remarkable man, a man who is example to all the rest of us. He has risen by the dint of integrity and perseverance from the position of poor porter in a shop to be one of the most respected mercantile characters in the city of London. With this explanation, Amelius handed over the letter to Mr. Heathcote. It was addressed as follows, to John Farnaby, Esquire, Messrs. Ronald and Farnaby, Stationers, Aldersgate Street, London. End of Book One, Chapter One.